Thank you for downloading our podcast. Make sure you subscribe to get new ones every week. And don't forget to check out First United Methodist Sweetwater's website and social media. Now, here is Pastor Ryan Strebeck. You know, one of the great things, uh, the great joys of being a pastor is having an opportunity to observe and participate with the many gifts that we have in our congregation. And so uh, I was actually having a conversation with one of our leaders this week, uh, a couple of them, and um, this member said, you know, it's so important for us to understand the Spirit is working and giving us gifts and that we, you know, work together with the Spirit to use those gifts. And so um, it was perfect timing for that. And it's my honor to introduce to you, Cindy, if you'll come out here. Many of you already know Cindy Stroman, uh, but if you don't know her, you may know her as a teacher or a mother or a grandmother or a great-grandmother. You may know her in other capacities, but today you get to know her as our preacher. So it is a joy, Cindy, to welcome you uh, again to the pulpit. We are always blessed with your insights. Uh, She is a student of the scriptures. Uh, She is a very devoted heart. And so you can trust what she says. And Cindy, it's an honor. We're glad to have you today. So if you'll join me in welcoming Cindy Stroman today. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan, for those glowing words. Now I I feel a pressure. (laughs) Do you remember the television sitcom Cheers? If you're my generation, you do. If the younger people, I apologize, you may not know that show. The theme song for Cheers was the song Where Everybody Knows My Name. It was written and recorded by Gary Portnoy in 1982. The lyrics go like this. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name, and they're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. You want to be where everybody knows your name. Recently, we heard this song used on a commercial for Applebee's, and I began to think about the significance of those words. It describes a place. In Cheers, it's a bar. In Applebee's, it's a restaurant. But in both places, people feel welcomed and included. It's a place where they feel like part of a family, the place where they are known and accepted. I believe we are all born with an intrinsic desire to be a part of a group where we are accepted, loved, and secure. God designed the family to fill that need. But we live in a fallen world where families become dysfunctional, children are abused, and disasters leave people homeless. And many of the problems in society today can be traced to the failure of the family. People who are searching for a place to belong often join destructive groups like street gangs or drug cartels. And sometimes those who feel insecure try to bolster their self-esteem by excluding others. Many of the suicides among teens today are caused by bullying, by being ostracized and isolated until they despair and take their own lives. 
God created us with that need to belong, and he wants us to belong to his family, to be a part of his kingdom. There is such a mystery about the kingdom of God. Where is it? What is it? What are the requirements for membership? We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. But do we really understand what we are praying? Can the kingdom of God exist on earth, or is it in a future kingdom? Can it be both? In the early 20th century, Princeton theologian Gerhardus Voss developed the theological concept that the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. He stated that the believers are actively taking part in the kingdom of God, although the kingdom will not reach its full expression until sometime in the future. We are already in the kingdom when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, but we do not fully see its glory yet. Those of you who studied the Bible under Joe Bagby may remember his Venn diagram to represent the kingdom of God. Imagine two large circles that intersect. One circle is the world, one circle is the kingdom of God. And that point of intersection is the kingdom of God on earth. The area that intersects is the already kingdom, that segment of time and place where we are actively in the presence of God, experiencing the Holy Spirit. I searched the Bible for the phrases kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God, and the result was amazing. It showed that Jesus' ministry on earth was focused like a laser on identifying the kingdom of heaven for us and telling us how to become part of it. John the Baptist proclaimed the coming of Jesus by saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He was talking about Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah. And after Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, he began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He was referring to his life and ministry that would open the door of the kingdom to any who chose to follow him. The focus of the Sermon on the Mount was access to the kingdom of heaven. One example, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But most interesting to me was the discovery that almost every parable that Jesus taught began with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like. He used parables repeatedly to try to describe it and to teach us how to get there. The two parables we're looking at today compare the kingdom of heaven to the growth of seeds. Now, it's not news to you that I'm fascinated by seeds. I've used that theme before several times. Maybe it's because I grew up in the desert of West Texas where it was difficult to get anything to grow, especially trees, 
There was actually a town near where I lived named No Trees. And maybe seeds fascinate me because I watched my father, a self-taught conservationist, try to bring our ranch back from repeated droughts by broadcasting grass seed and covering grass runners, doing all he could to propagate new life. You know, seeds are magic because they have the potential for creation. A seed develops when the plant is dying and it carries within it everything needed to germinate, to put down roots, to produce a new plant of the same species. When you think about it, that's a miracle. In our scripture for today, the miracle of the seed corresponds to the miracle of God's power in our lives, the power to make us his children and members of his kingdom. The first parable is Mark 4, 26 to 29. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. The first thing to notice here is that although the farmer is the one who scatters the seed, he doesn't make the seed grow. In fact, he doesn't even know how it grows. The seed holds within itself that secret, and the earth is said to produce all by itself. The growth of the seed is imperceptible as it transforms into a blade, a head, and a full kernel. But this suggests an appointed order of development that is constant and certain. And this sequence assumes that whatever has transpired under the ground will become visible. All the farmer can do is wait patiently for a harvest. And when the grain is ripe and the conditions are ripe for harvest, there's an air of urgency and the farmer again has a role to play. So what does this parable teach us about the kingdom of God? First, the kingdom is invisible, but constantly growing. And second, we don't know how it works. And third, we must be patient to see it. And fourth, there's a point of culmination when there will be harvest or spiritual maturity. Now let's look at the second parable in Mark 4, 30 to 32. Again he said, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parables shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds can perch in its shade. Bible commentator William Barclay says that in this parable there are two pictures which every good Jew would recognize. 
First, in Palestine, a grain of mustard seed stood proverbially for the smallest possible thing. For example, faith as a grain of mustard seed means the smallest conceivable amount of faith. The mustard seed did in fact grow into something like a tree, sometimes reaching 15 feet. And birds were fond of the little black seeds of the tree, and a cloud of birds over a mustard tree was a common sight in Palestine. Second, in the Old Testament, one of the most common ways to describe a great empire was to describe it as a tree, and the tributary nations within it were said to be like birds perching on its branches. The image of a tree with birds in the branches therefore stood for a great empire and the nations who were part of it. So what does this parable teach us about the kingdom of God? First, it tells us that the kingdom of God can grow from the smallest beginnings. The smallness of the seeds was proverbial, but Jesus doesn't compare the kingdom of God to the mustard seed, but to what happens to the mustard seed. Through the power of God, that tiny seed can be transformed into a 15-foot high shrub. And what God will accomplish through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ will be just as extraordinary. The seed, Christ, one man, the 12 disciples, the 500 who witnessed his, his as a risen Messiah, the 3,000 who were converted on Pentecost, the church today, are on an individual level. My desire to know God, my hope that he exists, my seeking of his face, my belief, my study of his word, my prayers, my faith, trust, and obedience, my service, a relationship with God, the kingdom of heaven. The second thing this parable teaches us is that the kingdom of heaven is all-inclusive. Like the image of the tree as a great empire, it will shelter all who come to it. And God's goal is for the whole world to be there. Both parables represent the idea of the mystery of the seed. It's small, almost insignificant beginnings. And yet in both parables, there is confidence in the inevitability of a personal relationship with God. So how do these parables make a difference in our own lives today? First, we need to recognize that in these parables, the king himself was the teacher. Jesus came to bring the world into the kingdom to show us the way. But even his disciples had a difficult time understanding his parables. And Jesus told his, his disciples in Mark 4, 11 through 12, 
The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Those on the outside, those who refused to believe that he was from God, that he was God, that he was the Messiah, would never understand because their hearts were hardened. They refused to believe in him. We don't want to be on the outside. We don't want to be left out, left behind, unforgiven forever. We are born with that strong need to belong. So the first thing we need to do is believe in Jesus Christ, to believe that he is God come to earth to sacrifice himself for our redemption. That's the first step we take to belong to his kingdom. That is the seed. And the seed must be sown by the farmer. God will never force us to belong to his family. It is our choice, even though it is his desire. In Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, Paul says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. He wants to bring us into his family and he has a plan to make us holy through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, but he leaves us free to choose him. The prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray calls for God's kingdom to come in order that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we need to look at God's will. What does God expect of us if we belong to his kingdom? He specifically outlined what his will was for his children when he gave Moses the Ten Commandments. He expects us to love, honor, and obey him as the one true God. He expects us to honor our parents and the Sabbath. He does not want us to murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, or covet what belongs to someone else. Jesus summed it up in two lines. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. But when I look at the world around me today, I am so sad when I see that the world seems to always be going in the wrong direction, not toward God, but away from God. According to a poll taken in 2020, only 24% of Americans attend church services regularly and 29% never attend. There are efforts to remove God from our Pledge of Allegiance and from our money, 
and the cross and the Ten Commandments are frequently abolished from government properties. Domestic violence, child abuse, rape, murder, and theft are on the increase, and truth seems to be an elusive quality in the public as well as the private domain. Counterculture would like to nullify anything that represents God, tradition, or stability in our world. And freedom seems to be slipping from our grasp. So obviously, we're not living in the kingdom of God on earth. But every generation that has ever lived probably believed that their world was the worst that had ever existed. And because of sin, we can never live in perfect harmony. So what can we do to bring the kingdom of God closer here on earth? Do we have that power? We cannot change the world, but we do have the power through the Holy Spirit to change ourselves. We can become seeds that grow the kingdom of God within our own lives, and changed lives reveal God's to others, which spreads the kingdom. Christ sent his disciples out to preach, to heal, to drive demons out in his name. And they were able to perform miracles. And that was before they even understood who he really was. They just believed in his power because they had seen it in action. They had belief in him, but did not understand how it worked or why. They were seeds of his kingdom, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we can be too. Once that seed has been planted in each of our lives, the Holy Spirit begins to work within us, a mysterious force that whispers in our hearts, that tugs at our conscience and brings us to our knees in sorrow and repentance. We don't know how it works. We don't understand it, but we feel it. It leads us ever closer to God. It is in those moments of connection, of feeling the presence of God, that we are in his kingdom. When we pray, when we praise his name, when we study his word, we are in his kingdom. When we serve him, when we witness to him, when we gather in his name and commune at his table, we are in his kingdom. But our moments in his kingdom are just that, pieces of time and place out of our daily lives. Each fragment of kingdom brings us closer to him until just like the mustard, seed, mustard tree, we shelter others in his presence or like the sown seed, we are ripe and ready to be harvested. We get a taste of the kingdom of God here on earth, but the ultimate sense of belonging to God 
will come when we transition to his kingdom for good. That is my goal, and I know it is yours. When we arrive at our final destination, it will be to a place where everybody knows our name, and they're glad we came, a place where we are loved and we belong. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.